29th Psalm. God in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for this great day. We've had a good day around here, Lord. We saw lots of folks get baptized this morning. We saw a house full of people who were worshiping you with all their heart. Lord, we left this morning a more grateful people. And we're thankful for what you're doing tonight. Back in that room with those young men, a a place where you are molding and making men. Lord, I pray for Nate and Larry. Give them wisdom. Give them strength. Lord, help them be the example for our young men that, uh, that they need. And Lord, be with Zach and what they're doing, Andy and what they're doing back in the high school group. Lord, how they need, uh, need your leading and your guidance. Lord, uh, wherever the middle school girls are tonight and the kids tonight, just bless all these ministries, all the things that are going on here at Calvary Chapel. Lord, we thank you for our church, and we thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. We thank you for many, many things, Lord. We thank you most tonight for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that it's been written of him in the entire volume of the book. It speaks of Jesus. And so help us look for him tonight as we study your word. And in his name we pray. Amen. You know, the Hebrew Psalms are like the landscape of America. They're vast, and they're deep, and they're beautiful. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam, the Psalms cover lots of territory, pain and pleasure, praise and persecution, hurt and happiness, grief and gladness, loneliness and laughter. We find them all in the Psalms. The Psalms represent a whole landscape of physical and emotional and spiritual setting. In fact, there's a psalm written in and for every conceivable situation. Tonight we come to the 29th psalm. It's a call to worship. Here David depicts God's might through meteorology. In fact, he tracks a storm at sea as it sweeps across the land. And he credits this storm to the voice of God. In fact, to get the full effect of Psalm 29, you really need to wait until late July, 1st of August, one of those sudden summer thunderstorms, a real thunder boomer when the sky gets black and the winds start to howl and lightning bolts dart across the sky. Next time we get one of those, grab your Bible, run out right in the middle of it, and read the 29th Psalm. You'll be blessed. This is what the psalmist tells us. Given to the Lord... Oh, you mighty ones. This expression, mighty ones, can be translated sons of God, which is a phrase that the Jews use to denote the angels. So he's saying to the angels, Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Here we're told to give to the Lord. But as we learned this morning, this can become problematic. Ever try to give a gift for someone who already owns everything? This is our problem when it comes to God. What does God, what what can we give to God that He doesn't already own, that He doesn't already have? The only thing that God doesn't already possess is our praise and our worship. Hey, the gift that keeps on giving 
is the glory due His name. Let's worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. For the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The psalmist sees God behind the formation of this storm. His voice is what's causing the thunder to clap. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. The wind sweeps in from the north. God takes a deep breath and He lets it out. And the voice of the Lord sweeps across the north. The great trees of Lebanon, the cedars, begin to crackle. Some of those cedars are as high as 120 feet. They're as wide as 40 foot in circumference. And yet the Lord's voice, His wind, snaps them off like toothpicks. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. God's voice splits through the sky. Lightning darts in different directions. It sends bolts darting across the northern sky. Remember that phrase, the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everyone says, Glory. As this storm sweeps southward across the deserts of the Negev, it unleashes incredible power. It begins to shake the wilderness. It creates chaos among God's creation. The pregnant deer panics and gives birth. Get the picture now. Below this storm, there's panic. Everything's in chaos. You know, the deer's been thrown out of rhythm. Above the storm, though, there's great peace. In fact, in the Lord's temple, everyone is shouting, glory, glory. The Lord has this under control. God is awesome. That's why Paul tells us to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So often we focus on the panic below rather than the peace above. Don't we understand that God is in control of the storm? That God is in charge? That there's nothing for us to fear? The Lord is today shaking and rattling this world. Have you noticed the stock market? <laughs> Have you looked at your 401k? The Lord is rattling us. He's shaking those things. Those who trust in earthly stuff are bound to be disappointed. That's why we need to live above the storm. We need to tether our heart and our hope to God's temple, not to the things of this earth. Well, verse 10 tells us the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Read this psalm next time you go look at your 401k statement. <laughs> Next time you examine the volatility in the marketplace, remember the Lord will bless His people with peace. The Lord sat enthroned above this storm. The flood of Noah's day was the mother of all storms. And yet here we're told that God oversaw the flood from His throne there in heaven. Trust me, the storm you're encountering tonight is nothing for God. It's nothing compared to the flood in Noah's day. The Lord gives strength. If we trust Him, He'll bless His people with peace. And here's an interesting detail. 
the Jews sung Psalm 29 at what feast? Any guesses? At the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And you wonder the reason for that association. Remember when Jesus filled his church with the Holy Spirit? He came on the day of Pentecost as a rushing mighty wind, as a storm from the north. You know, as it crosses the disciples, as it fills the upper room. And guess what they saw above the heads of the disciples? There were little flickers and flames of fire above the disciples' head. The fire had come upon the sacrifice. It was a spiritual storm, complete with wind and with lightning bolts. Imagine being there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit now descends on His church and fills the disciples with His joy and His power. And someone reads Psalm 29, verse 7. At that moment, on that day, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. And then you look up and you see those flickers of fire above the heads of each other and the disciples in that room. Wow! You think to yourself, these psalms, they have some prophetic insight. The psalmist was speaking of things to come, even in the 29th psalm. Great psalm. Well, the countdown is on. In 60 days or so now, Barak and Michelle and Malia and Sasha, the Obama family, they're going to move in to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. A new family is going to move into the White House. It's interesting that Psalm 30, how about that? It's interesting that Psalm 30 was written for a very, very similar occasion. When David was king over all Israel, when he became king, he moved his capital city from Hebron in the south up to Jerusalem. He consolidated the, the kingdom by moving his capital to Jerusalem. When he did that, King Hiram of Tyre saw that David was a rising star on the political landscape, and he wanted to remain Israel's ally. And so he sent men and materials down to Jerusalem to build for David a palace. Psalm 30 was written at the completion of that palace. Psalm 30, in essence, was written for the dedication of David's White House. In fact, today you can visit the old city of Jerusalem and you can tour the archaeological digs there uh, underneath the street level. You know, the city of David, as it's called, you can actually go there and you can see where they're unearthing this palace that David built uh, when he moved his capital to Jerusalem. Well, in honor of this construction, he, he, he writes this psalm, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. And notice the play on words here. Extol means, extol, to extol someone is to do what? It's to lift them up. God lifted David out of exile. God lifted David and made him king. Now David will lift up the Lord in praise. And have not let my foes rejoice over me, O Lord my God. I cried out to you, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. I love this. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. 
Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Remember, David was on the run from Saul for seven and a half years. Saul chased him. David was hunted down like a wounded deer. David had been the object of lies and falsehoods. And over that course of time, he had pleaded to God to vindicate him and to deliver him. And yet yet there were times when it seemed as if David, uh, his prayers weren't even getting off the launching pad. There were moments when he wondered if God was even hearing his prayers, if God had not turned a deaf ear to his prayers. Imagine seven and a half years of sleepless nights and countless bouts with despair and who knows how many tears. And yet, all of a sudden, a new day has dawned for David. His exile years are now over. He's gone from the pit to the pinnacle. He's gone from pain to the palace. He's gone from hiding in a cave to now being coronated a king. David is king of Israel. And looking back, David realizes that his long nights were filled with many, many lessons. It's been said, joys are our wings while sorrows are our spurs. And indeed it's true, isn't it? God uses pain and sorrow in our life. But thankfully, only for a season. You know, for the child of God, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. God will spank his child. If you've been his child for very long, you know. God is faithful to spank us when we step out of line. He's not afraid to use his belt on one of his kids. God isn't timid. But with the paddling comes a mercy. For he always disciplines us with a lesson in mind, with a purpose in mind. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, God soon turns from his wrath, but he never turns from his love. God's discipline is always a sign of his love for us. It's interesting, though, the experience of an unbeliever is just the opposite. His joy is but for a moment, while his weeping is forever. You know, there's a difference between an unbeliever in need of a Savior and a believer in need of a spanking. An unbeliever has done nothing to appease God's anger over his sin. Therefore, he's left to experience God's wrath for the remainder of all eternity. Verse 6 tells us, Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Wait a minute, David. Don't be too confident now. You know, you have to abide in Christ. You have to continue to walk in humility and continue to trust in the Lord. Don't say you shall not be moved. You know, it's not over. At the time, David thought he was invincible. This was his coronation day. He assumed that his prosperity would be perpetual. That this palace that he now occupied would put him out of reach of troubles and of problems. Ironically, it was from the very porch of this same palace that he looked out over the rooftops one night and he saw a woman bathing in the moonlight. And what happened in that same palace that night almost cost him his kingdom. Wait a minute, David. Don't get overconfident. He says, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? 
Will it declare your truth? Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. I love these words. He, he, he says, you have put off my sackcloth. It means literally to tear off. Notice, you've torn off my sackcloth. The Lord doesn't want to see us grieving and mourning. Just as soon as we repent, He's quick to tear off that sackcloth and close us with glory and dancing and singing. You know, salvation is a swap. Dancing for depression. Glory for grieving. You know, fall to your knees and you'll soon be doing a jig with your feet. Repent. And you'll find dancing in the morning. Well, the psalm ends, Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. It's interesting that Psalm 31 was quoted by Jeremiah, later quoted by Jonah, and finally quoted by Jesus. It's been called a mosaic of misery and mercy. The psalmist is riding in between the crest and trough of a gnarly wave. He's getting churned up and rolled over. In this psalm, he's fighting to stay alive. We don't really know when David wrote this psalm. It's possible that it was the composite of feelings that he had in various experiences and in different times. Certainly, it was written during a time of heavy persecution. It's interesting, David addresses this psalm, Psalm 31, to the chief musician. If you've been paying attention now, the last psalm that was addressed to the chief musician was Psalm 22, which was a prophecy of the cross of Jesus. It's amazing that this psalm also looks to his suffering and at points deals with the crucifixion. Well, verse 1 tells us, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of re refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And I'm sure you recognized those words, didn't you? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Luke 23, verse 46. These are the words that Jesus spoke just before he surrendered his life into the hands of the Father and died for our sin. And yet, you know, these are also appropriate words for us to pray. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. On the cross, God purchased our lives. That's why it's fitting now for us to continually place back into God's hands what belongs to Him. You know, often I, I remind God, you know, God, I belong to you. I'm not my own anymore. I'm yours, Lord. I, I like to put my hands back into God's hands, my life back into God's hands. I like to remind him that I'm his investment, you know, that he died to save me, that he's, he's invested so much in me. I like to remind him I'm his investment. You take care of your investments, don't you? It's appropriate for us to pray, into your hand, Lord, I commit my spirit. Verse 6, I have hated those 
who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. You know, for years, David felt like he had been sort of tiptoeing around danger, you know. Always on the edge of trouble. But now, all of a sudden, God has set his feet in a wide place. He feels secure. He feels safe. God has become his security. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. On the one hand, he feels like he's he's safe. And now he turns back around and he says, oh, I'm in trouble. Like I say, Psalm 31 is sort of a roller coaster of emotion. One moment he's feeling secure. The next moment, you know, his strength is failing and his bones are wasting away. Life can be like that sometimes, can't it? We can feel those, that pendulum of emotion within a week. Go from the highs to the low. <laughs> oh my, we can feel that way within a 24-hour period. I've had four high schoolers. I can feel that way within about one afternoon. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. And I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. You wonder what's wrong with him. David walks out his front door and his neighbors jump in the car and drive off. What's going on? You know, some commentators speculate that David may have contracted leprosy after his sin with Bathsheba. A more logical explanation for me is that some of his subjects treated him like a leper. You know, we know that his own family, his own children held a deep resentment toward him over his sin and over his infidelity and the betrayal of his family with Bathsheba. He says, I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. A broken vessel is of no use. And David, at this point, is feeling very, very disposable. You ever felt very disposable? You ever felt like a throwaway? Like it didn't really matter if you just got trashed, you know, that who would miss you? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe we all have. He says, For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, and here's, here's the solution if you're feeling disposable tonight. He says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Notice verse 15. It contains a beautiful line of Scripture. David says to God, my times are in your hand. Think about that. The life and times of every believer are ultimately written by God. My times are in His hand. Your times are in His hand. As one man put it, 
all my life's ways and winds and wheres and wherefores are in God's hands. Timing is such a crucial part of life, isn't it? Timing is such a crucial part of living. I mean, look at nature. If you want a seed to sprout, it needs to be planted at just the right time. Timing is also crucial to our success and to our failures. Success has a lot to do with being at the right place at the right time. And so how do you read the times? Life is so unpredictable. None of us can see into the future. So, so how, do you, how do you predict the right time? How, how do you read the times? You, you don't. The answer is that you trust God with the timing of your life. You, you, you rec- recognize, Lord, my times are in your hands. And I trust you, Lord. I, I put my times into your hands. Lord, I'm, I'm counting on you for the timing of my life. Verse 16. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. God is going to shut up lying lips one day. He says, Oh, how great is your goodness! which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Now listen carefully. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. God is going to protect those who fear him. Now, The New Testament tells us that God has incredible blessings in store for His children. Peace and comfort and power and healing. There are many others. In fact, Ephesians tells us that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And yet, if these blessings are so available, why aren't more believers experiencing their blessings? Why are there so many sad Christians? Defeated Christians. Why aren't we experiencing these blessings if they're so bountiful and if they're so available? Here's the answer. They're hidden. They're they're obtainable, but they're hidden. Notice this psalm. God hides them in a secret place. Here's what God does. He protects these blessings from men and women who don't appreciate them and who will misuse them. He keeps His blessings on reserve for only those people who fear Him and who respect Him. He says, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. Notice this, this is so important. Here's why so many people live without God's treasures. You have to love His presence to enjoy His blessings. Did you catch that? You have to love His presence to enjoy His blessings. Because that's where He's hidden them. In the pavilion of His presence. In the secret place of His presence. That's why I love that song we sing. The secret place. You know, to, to, to know God. To, to have that intimate relationship with God. You, you get the, when you get Him, you get everything else that comes with Him. 
But if you're seeking the other stuff, you miss him and you don't get anything. But when you seek him, the treasures, the blessings come with him. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. How many of us in a moment of despair have wrongly concluded that God has let us down? How many of us have said in our haste? Oh, God, God just, God let me down. God, God wasn't there. Wait a minute. Are you sure? And then, and then the next day, God comes through, and afterwards, what are we doing? We're apologizing. We're sorry. We're repenting. Lord, I'm so sorry. You were faithful after all. I was the one who lacked patience. He says, oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful And fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 32. There's number 32 right there. My namesake, Sandy Koufax, saved me a lot of grief growing up. Whenever someone would say, boy, why do you have a girl's name? You ever heard of Sandy Koufax? There he is right there, the greatest pitcher to ever. As a matter of fact, number 32, my favorite baseball player, number 33, you're going to have to wait till we get there, my favorite basketball player, and number 34, my favorite college football player. You're going to have to wait till we get there. I'm just giving you a little tip. Psalm 32 is labeled a contemplation. The Hebrew word is meskil. Thirteen psalms have this same title, a contemplation. These are sermons set to song. You know, God created music, and He gave it to the church not just for worship. It's also a way to convey a message. Sometimes sermons are set to songs. One Sunday, I might just break off and sing to you for 30 minutes and just sing the sermon to you. This is all beside the point, but, but I learned the other day. Do you realize that until sin entered the world, every word that man spoke was, was a song? He sang everything. He sang the song to, to the woman in the garden. The only time he starts speaking words is when sin, after sin entered into the world. Could it be that God meant for us to communicate just by singing to each other all the time? It was just... just that was to be the mode of communication. And, and sin is what robbed us of that melody and that song. Isn't that interesting? Just threw it in there. This is a song, a, a, a sermon set to a song. Remember, after David's sin with Bathsheba, remember he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And David repented of his sin. To David's credit, as soon as his sin was exposed, he came clean. And he wrote Psalm 51 as a confessional. In Psalm 51, David promises to help others profit from his mistakes. 
In fact, in verse 12 and 13 of Psalm 51, he prays to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Well, Psalm 32 is David's attempt to keep his promise and to teach sinners God's ways. This psalm is a first-hand account of the importance of repentance in our lives. Also note that Psalm 32 was sung by the Hebrews on the Day of Atonement. This was their national day of fasting and repentance. You see, the Jews, they would come to the temple on the Day of Atonement, and they would be dressed in sackcloth and ashes, symbols of remorse and repentance. And they would sing Psalm 32, Blessed! Or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Yet as they sang, no one looked very happy. They all looked sad. They were in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone was bogged down with guilt. They were deeply aware of their sin. That is, until the high priest exited from the Holy of Holies. He had offered the sacrifice and he had sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. And his appearance before them meant that God had accepted their sacrifice. And now their sin was covered. And at the sight of the priest, suddenly the crowd would erupt in celebration. They would begin to praise the Lord. Now they felt forgiven. Now their sin and guilt was gone. And they would begin to dance and sing and rejoice. But they knew there could be no blessedness. No happiness until there had been repentance and forgiveness. And the same is true for us. There can be no happiness, no real blessedness until there's true repentance. He begins, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Impute is an accounting term. It means to record in the ledger. When a Christian sins, we know that we've sinned. God knows that we've sinned. Our friends and our, even our enemies know that we've sinned. And yet, because sin is imputed, it's not recorded in the ledger. Sin is not imputed to the man who's been forgiven by God. We're in Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus blots out all of my debts. His righteousness supplies all of my assets. That's why when I sin and I'm in Christ Jesus, my sins are forgiven. They're not imputed. The Lord does not impute iniquity. When I sin, He doesn't write it down. Doesn't mean that I didn't do it. Doesn't mean that He didn't see it. But He doesn't write it down. Because I'm in Christ. And he doesn't impute sin against me if I'm trusting in Jesus. And he doesn't you either. One day, I'm going to stand before God. And God is going to open the ledgers. And guess what? They're going to be perfect. They're going to be perfect. There are going to be no debts on the debt debtor side. There's going to be all righteousness on the righteousness side. That's what my ledger is going to look like. And Satan is going to have a duck. He's going to step up and he's going to say, wait a minute. But God, I've been watching this guy. God, I've got videos and snapshots and tape recordings. 
and Kathy's testimony. I got it all against that guy. I got everything I need to convict that Sandy Adams guy. But you know what God is going to say? Hey, all that is inadmissible evidence because it's all been blotted out and washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. It cannot be imputed. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Remember when Paul sent Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus back home? Paul cleared up the ledger. Philemon was told to receive his former slave as he would receive Paul. Paul said, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I'll cancel his debt. And then he says, treat Onesimus like you would treat me. This is what Jesus does to us. If He says, hey, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll cover his debts. And then I want you to treat him like you would me. I want you to, to bestow on him my righteousness. This is what Jesus has done for us. Wow. In the heavenly ledgers, our sin is erased from the hard drive. Isn't that cool? Gone. We're created the righteousness of Christ. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones... Now, here's the only thing that can get you in trouble. Hide your sin. Hold on to your sin. Refuse to confess your sin. And it will eat you away like a cancer. He said, when I kept silent, when I didn't confess it, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. For the better part of a year, David was tortured by his guilty conscience. He was hounded by the Holy Spirit. And sin ate away at him like rottenness in his bones. It negatively affected David's physical health, in fact. It sapped him of his vitality. It was just a year, but he aged 10. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Finally, he did. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When David came clean, God cleansed him. And when you come clean, God will cleanse you. But you've got to come clean. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And God now speaks to David. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Don't be stubborn, David. Don't be resistant like a mule. Brokenness is the key. Humility, humbleness. Harness your heart to God's will. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What a wonderful song. Psalm 33. There he is. Psalm 33 speaks not just 
to the worshiper, but to the worship leader. In fact, Psalm 33 is an encouragement to turn up our praise. Verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Did you hear that? For praise from the upright is beautiful. Yesterday, we had a wedding here at the church. Ashley and Brian got married. Two lovers dressed up for each other. Brian styling in his nice tuxedo and Ashley in her beautiful wedding gown. It, it, was, it was pretty. They both dressed up for each other. And in the same way, the bride of Christ should get dressed up for her bridegroom. And what does Jesus like to see his people wearing? Guys, you, you probably have a favorite outfit that your wife wears. You always like for her to wear that, that dress or that pair of jeans or that t-shirt or whatever you got a favorite outfit you like to see your wife wearing you, you tell her about it often we hear the lord the, the bridegroom is telling his bride what, what he likes to see us wearing and, and what is it he says for praise from the upright is beautiful in the eyes of god our praise our worship makes us beautiful Verse 2, praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Here's a word to the worship leaders. Play skillfully. And the opposite of skillfully is sloppily or shabbily. You know, leaders of worship need to work at their craft. They need to develop their skill and their talent. The praise of God deserves our very best efforts. Too often the church chooses between art and heart. It should never have to choose. We should value both. Too often, though, the, the church chooses between art and heart. Some churches have the, the joyful noise mentality. You know, it doesn't matter how you sound. God listens to your heart. So just wail away and God will love what he hears. And God might. But that doesn't mean the rest of us will. And these are the churches that have people like me on the worship team. God forbid. Other churches, though, go to the opposite extreme. They hire professional musicians. You know, the volunteers aren't good enough. And they strive for the highest levels of musicianship. It's the concert mentality. Worship suddenly becomes a musical performance. I don't think we should go to either extreme. Worship should always come from our heart. But worship involves good art. And there should be a balance between the two. Notice also verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song. Not the same old hymns for 200 years. And you know, we, we're on a kick around here about singing the hymns. And, and it's okay and it's fine. But I want to sing a new song. You know, if we get back to some new songs, blame it on me, all right? I don't want to sing the same old hymns. The same old songs. I've been, been singing 
some of them say fossil, they're fossilized. God wants a new song sung, an exciting song, a song that reaches the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I, I'm not making it up. This is what God desires. He says, sing to him a new song. God desires that. It's important. You know, no, notice this phrase, new song. It means one that has never been heard before. In other words, an original song. Sing an original song to me. Do you ever make up songs to the Lord? Are you walking through the day and you just sort of make, start making songs up? You, you never do this when anybody can hear you. You always do this kind of under your breath, but I sing songs like that to the Lord. I just kind of make up new songs. I like better, though, the new songs that Josh makes up. They're even better. But we need to write new songs. We need to sing songs that are our songs. I think that's what God desires. That doesn't mean we're not going to do any more hymns. We are. Don't, don't worry. But we also need to sing a new song. That's biblical. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The words were spoken, the worlds were spoken into existence with nothing more than the power of God's word. Let there be, and suddenly there was. Wow, the power of our God. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. I was thinking about this this week. We're like ants at the picnic. I'm sure those ants have a plan. But the ant plan is subject to the plan of man. The, plant, the, the ant plan can sort of get ended like boom, like that. You know, just with one stomp of the foot. All the ant plans are gone. Likewise with the policies and the strategies of nations. They're ant plans. For in one bold move, the Almighty God can just do something different and just wipe out all of those plans. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Only God's plan shapes eternity. The rest are just ant plans. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Of course, this was the nation Israel. And yet I suppose this verse could also be applied to America. And I guess here's a primer on why America has risen to such prominence on the world stage. When we've made God our Lord, he's blessed us. Blessed is that nation. Much of our history, God, the true God, has been our God. This verse might also explain part of our demise. For who is our God now? We wonder. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. 
from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Notice God fashions their hearts individually. I like this. Discipleship, growing in Christ, is not some cookie-cutter approach. It's never a one-size-fits-all operation. God works in our lives personally and individually. Isn't this wonderful? That He tailors a specific plan of discipleship for you. Now, His objective is the same. He wants us all to be like Jesus. But His means of getting there is different from person to person. There's one commonality. God's plan of discipleship always involves a certain amount of pressure and squeezing. He fashions their hearts individually, but that word fashion means to mold by squeezing. And and this is how God molds us and gets us to that Christ-likeness. He puts some pressure on us. He begins to squeeze us in certain areas. And he starts shaping us like a potter would shape the clay by applying pressure where we need to change. He squeezes us like a tube of toothpaste. He squeezes until we shift the right way. Verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Don't be deceived, he says. A king's strength is not in his military might. God is his deliverer. God is his safety. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Now, Lynette started this. I didn't. Lynette's the one who started this, so just so you'll know. But here's the preface to Psalm 34. There he is, Herschel Walker. Yeah. There we go. Lynette started that, though. I, I didn't. I was probably wouldn't even have gone there had Lynette not worn that Georgia Tech jersey right in here tonight. But here's the preface to Psalm 34. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Remember the story? King Saul had tried to kill David three different times. He had thrown his lance at David. He tried to put a permanent part right through his hair. Three times he tried to spear him, shish kebab him. All three times David survived. When David finally fled Saul's court, he went to the tabernacle at Nob. And there he went to fetch some food. He ate the showbread off the table. But he also did something else. He grabbed hold of Goliath's sword. Remember the same sword he had used to to lop off his head? David evidently had, had been kept there in the David memorabilia section. But he went back and he ate some showbread and he got Goliath's sword and he strapped it on his side. Now, David had no place to run. He'd felt rejected by his own people. 
And so David makes a stupid decision. He makes a stupid move. He turns to his enemies for help. David goes to Philistine territory. And guess where he goes? To the city of Gath. To Goliath's own hometown. David, what are you doing? He struts in the Gath wearing the giant sword dangling from his belt. David, have you lost your mind? Before the end of the day, he'll pretend as if he has. Soon it became apparent that the Philistines weren't ready to let bygones be bygones. They placed David in shackles and they brought him to their king. But David was a quick thinker. He pretended to be crazy. He started babbling and foaming at the mouth and bouncing off the walls and just acted like a real nutcase. Clawing at the walls and foaming at the mouth and and, and the king of God looked at him and said, man, I've got enough nutcases in my kingdom. So get him out of here, you know. I don't need another one. And so he sends David away. And David goes back to Israel, back to the cave of Adullam. He's grateful now that God has preserved his life. And David rejoices over this narrow escape with a song of thanksgiving. Psalm 34 is another acrostic psalm. You know, it... Uh, took to form each line was uh, a succeeding started with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it was written in this form so that it would, could be memorized more easily and so Psalm 34 David's escape from Gath a song that the people of Israel memorized Psalm 34 begins I will bless the Lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth Apparently, praise is appropriate for every moment of every day in every situation. At noon, at night, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you're in the tub or the shower or the car or when you're alone or when you're with friends, when is it appropriate to praise the Lord? At all times, I will bless the Lord, he says. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. You know, I hate to say it, but I love to boast. I, I like to embellish a story and accentuate some accomplishments. I like to magnify and I like to amplify. And I don't know too many people who don't. And you know, that's okay as long as we boast in God. David said, I make my boast in the Lord. It's him that I'm always amplifying and magnifying. I'm always turning the spotlight on God. I'm always exalting His name. Let, he says, as a matter of fact, let's both come together and boast in the Lord and exalt His name together. That's always a good thing to do. Just sit around and amplify God. He says, I sought the Lord and He heard me and He delivered me from all my fears. His troubles were His own creation. He had done a dumb thing. He had walked over to the enemy's side and yet God had still delivered him. You know, God doesn't penalize stupidity. Aren't you glad? <laughs> he delivered David from all his fears. Verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out. He, he, the king calls himself the poor man. I like that. David says, the poor man cried out. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. And delivers them. I've heard when you become the president of the United States. The government dispatches secret service agents to watch out for your welfare. 
Well, you know, God does the same for his children. When you give your life to Jesus, he dispatches angels that camp around you and protect you. Here we read about them here. Now, I don't know if our angels wear sunglasses and, and suits. Was it already up there? Yeah, I don't know if they do that or they have little earphones in their ear. But they're God's secret service. And if need be, they'll take a bullet for you. These angels are called ministering spirits to the heir of salvation. God, God has camped these angels around you and around your family and around your household. Aren't you glad? Isn't this exciting? He says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. Fear the Lord. Trust the Lord. He, he's, he dispatched his angels to protect you. Verse 8 is a wonderful verse. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. David is saying, don't take my word for it. Experience God for yourself. Come to God and taste firsthand of his goodness. There are two ways that we can gain knowledge. You can gain knowledge academically or you can gain knowledge experientially. If I had a coconut cream pie, ooh, if I had a coconut cream pie. And I wanted to discover the taste of that coconut cream pie. I could proceed in two ways. I could actually cut a slither of the pie, put it under a microscope. I could do all kinds of little clinical testing on the pie. I could find out the chemical composition. Then I could do a biopsy on the taste buds on my tongue. And I could sort of feed them into a computer and I could analyze the data. And then I could Compare my body chemistry with the composition of the pie, and I could deduce an outcome of what it might taste like, how pleasant it would be or unpleasant it would be if I ate that coconut cream pie. Or I could just save a lot of effort, and I could just eat a bite. David is saying, hey, if you want to know God, don't spend the next 50 years studying theology. That's not necessary. You can just open up your heart and invite him in. And you can know him just like that. Oh, taste and see, for the Lord is good. It's simple, man. Happy is the man who trusts in God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And this is such a strategic verse. This is what you need to teach your kids. For there are many new Christians who return to their old life because they're afraid that God is going to leave them hanging. That there's something they're going to miss out on if they follow Jesus. You see, Satan loves to focus us on what we're leaving behind. Or on what we're giving up to follow God. He doesn't want us to see that God is going to replace that with something infinitely better. We don't need to worry. We have God's personal promise. And here it is, verse 10. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. No one who follows Jesus ends up lacking or feels cheated or feels left out. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You know, David desired life and, and he longed for long days and he wanted to see good. But he had sought it by turning toward evil. He had gone down to Gath. He learned the hard way that the key to God's blessing is to depart from evil, not, not run toward it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I'm sure you know that none of us are promised an affliction-free life. To the contrary, David tells us that many are the afflictions of the righteous. In the evil world that we live in, those who seek after righteousness will become a lightning rod for affliction. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. But if we humble our hearts, if we cry out to God, He promises to to deliver us from all of our afflictions. Verse 20, He guards all His bones, not one of them is broken. And here is a verse that's quoted again in John 19, verse 36. It was spoken of Jesus on the cross. Remember the Romans usually hastened a crucified person's death by breaking his legs. This caused the victim to be unable to push himself up to take a breath, and therefore he suffocated. It hastened his death. Yet when the soldier came to break Jesus' legs, you remember he was already dead, and so not one bone was broken in fulfillment of the psalm and of the prophecy here by David. Isn't it interesting? A pagan Roman's action fulfilled a king of Israel's prophecy. Interesting. Well, Psalm 34 closes. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. And there we have Psalm 34.